We got a picture of uh, Roald Anderson up on the screen when he was young. Um, he looks fired up, doesn't he? <laughs> I mean, really, you talk about enthusiastic kid, you know? Uh, you don't have to tell him to slow down. He's already in slow motion, as you can tell. This picture is somewhat deceptive because Roald um, from Norway... Um, became an explorer to uh, the South Pole. And you, when you look at his picture, you think, man, what happened to that dude? You know, something must have got him charged up uh, from that photo to being a young man, right? And so here he, here he is as a young man, and, and uh, he gives a quote um, right here, how did I happen to become an explorer? It's a good question. We'd like to know, right? After looking at that young picture of his. It didn't just happen, for my career has been a steady progress toward a definite goal since I was 15 years old. So something happened when he hit 15, man, to get him fired up. Like, instead of feeling sorry for himself, that's what that first picture reminds me of. He's probably feeling sorry for himself. He didn't get ice cream for breakfast, and, and uh, it wrecked his day. So um, something transitioned to where, man, there's something bigger out there for me instead of just feeling sorry for myself. And here this morning, you may be feeling sorry for yourself, you know, like, hey, life isn't fair, and I feel like I've been getting beat up so much that I'm just flat out worn out. Well, for Raul, um, in 1911, he became the first person to lead a successful expedition to the South Pole. And that didn't just happen because uh, he was famous for his incredible commitment to prepare for the expedition. He didn't just wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to go to the South Pole. He realized that you had to prepare yourself for the obstacles that were going, he was going to be facing. And so prepare. And uh, as we get into Daniel today, we're going to realize that Daniel just didn't wake up one day and get exiled out to Babylon and crashed and burned spiritually, but there had been some preparation in his life spiritually that became a core, his inner core, where there was that strength, that commitment, because he put that preparation in ahead of time so when the crises came, when exile came, he didn't freak out and hit the panic button. And so we can learn from Admison this morning. We look in 1899, in his late 20s, he traveled from Norway to Spain for a two-month sailing trip. So he had to get from Norway to Spain uh, to get his master's certificate, and that's about 2,000 miles. So you would think, uh, how did he make that journey? By carriage, by horse, by ship? By railroad, by car? <laughs> no, they didn't have cars back then yet. No, he decided to take a bicycle. You see a lot of bicycles running around here uh, in Wisconsin, don't you? Um, well, he, he got that trend going back then. Why? Because he wanted to uh, put some effort into it, some sweat and tears. And so he experimented with eating raw dolphin. How many of you have had dolphin lately? You know, hey, let's, let's go down to uh, 
the meat market, pick up some dolphin, man, uh, because he wanted to determine if it was a good energy supply. Today, we just go and get a power bar, you know, and that's good to hold. They didn't have power bars back then. So dolphin, he figured someday he might be shipwrecked. And um, finding himself surrounded by dolphins, he figured maybe he could eat one. So he experimented doing that. And it was all part of Edmondson's years of uh, building a foundation for the quest, training his body, learning as much as possible through practical experience, um, what actually worked for him in case a crisis came in to his life. So he didn't stop there. He started hanging around with Eskimos. Why? Because what better way to train for polar conditions and to spend time with people who have had 100 years of accumulated uh, experience with the ice, the cold, the snow, the wind, right? Good thought, man. So he learned how Eskimos used dogs to pull sleds. Uh, he observed how the Eskimos never hurried. Why? Because they always move slowly, steady, because they didn't want to sweat, because sweat can turn to ice and uh, in those sub-zero temperatures. We kind of experienced that a little bit last Saturday, huh? Yeah? Aren't you glad those temperatures are gone for a while? We could pretend, hey, man, let's go out and pretend we're Roald Amundsen in, in, in temperatures like that. So he adopted Eskimo clothing, loose-fitting to help the sweat evaporate, uh, he systematically practiced Eskimo's methods and training himself in every conceivable um, situation that he might encounter uh, on his trip to the South Pole. So here was his philosophy. You don't wait until you're in an unexpected storm to discover that you need more strength and endurance. It's a good thought. You don't wait until you're shipwrecked to determine if you can eat raw dolphin. You don't wait until you're on the Antarctic journey to become a superb skier and a dog handler. You prepare with intensity all the time so that when conditions turn against you, you can draw from a deep reservoir of strength. And equally, you prepare so that when conditions turn in your favor, you can strike hard. So, Raul Edmondson had a secret. And that secret was preparing for a crisis ahead of time, not waiting until you're in it to decide how you're going to operate and survive. But he prepared his mind, his body for the worst in case it ever happened. So let's take a look at the book of Daniel chapter one, starting in verse one. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men 
in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were trained, they were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, Azariah was called Abednego. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself. And Lord, this morning we thank you for your word. And we think uh, 2,500 years ago this uh, happened in history. And Daniel actually wrote a book about his experience. So we in 2023 can learn from it to prepare ourselves, Lord for the days that we're living in. And so we're so grateful for the wisdom that you have, knowing that we, living now, needed help and encouragement to know how to live in a culture um, that's gone haywire. And so today, right now, Lord, those watching online, those in this auditorium, we trust your Holy Spirit to work, to speak to us, the challenges encourage us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. A reminder, friends, that this is not our home. Philippians 3.20, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. The question is, are you eagerly waiting for him to return? That's a good question, isn't it? Are you afraid of his return? Are you uh, full of anxiety over his return? Or are you at peace with his return? Lord, I'm ready, you know. I've prepared my life. I'm trusting you for your return. I think it's important, friends, that we live our lives daily in a way where we're not fearing his coming, but we're expecting it with great enthusiasm. So, so we press on. So how do we live in exile? We, we, we can ask Daniel, uh, if, if we we're going to set out to the South Pole, uh, we would read um, Renald Emmetson's books, right? On his, how he prepared to get to the South Pole. Why? Because he, he did it well. He prepared himself. So if we want, you know, some wisdom on how to live in a culture that's gone loopy, uh, Daniel wrote a book about it, which would be a source of encouragement for you and me to dig into it, to see how he survived for 70 years in a culture that was really anti-God. And we'll get more into that in a few moments. But Daniel offers a model for you, for me, uh, not only just to survive, and unfortunately in Christendom today, uh, a lot of followers of Christ have just put it on cruise control. Man, I'm going to just hang on by my knuckles and my fingertips until Jesus comes. You know, we've kind of had that mindset. Instead of being proactive and realizing that God has planted you on this planet for such a time as this. How an, what an exciting time, really, to be alive. You know? 
I like history. There's times, man, I think, man, that history was cool. That's cool, man. Um, some of us think, man, I, I, I wish we were back in the good old days. Can I tell you, in those good old days, people were thinking, this is terrible. The world's a mess, you know? So whatever, whatever year you're living in, people always think it's terrible. And in a way it is, because we live in a broken world. Sin runs rampant. Going back to the Garden of Eden, man. Sickness, disease, pain, suffering was just boom, dumped onto this planet. Which gives us an idea that sin is a horrific thing. And here you have God who realized, man, I don't want to leave people on this planet with hopeless. And so I'm going to have a plan, and that is Jesus coming to take your place and my place on the cross to pay for our sin debt. And that's not the end of it. When we put our faith in Christ, we will go to be with the Lord forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> so that's a benefit. So not only do we have God's Spirit residing inside of us, man, empowering us to live proactive with our faith, not being ashamed of it, but being fired up over it. Why? Because it is God working in you and me that gives you and I the desire and the power to do what's pleasing to the Lord. See? It's not me getting all fired. It's allowing God to work in and through us. And when God is working in you, you can't contain it. Because it's, it's exciting. So Daniel gives us that great, that great source of encouragement, man, to thrive in a culture that is so anti-God. And we can thrive, not just survive. Hey, I don't know if you've uh, tracked the... Um, Doomsday clock? Anybody have a doomsday clock in your house? Huh? I don't. I don't. Um, but some people probably base their lives on, on, on the doomsday clock. Um, on January 24th, the doomsday clock was moved closer to midnight. Top scientists and security experts moved the doomsday clock forward to just 90 seconds to midnight, signaling an increased risk to humanity's survival. The new timing of the clock, set by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist, is closer to midnight than ever before. The hands of the clock, which the Bulletin describes as a metaphor for how close humanity is to self-annihilation, had been at 100 seconds to midnight since January 2020, the closest to midnight it had been in its history. So now it goes from 100 seconds to 90 seconds. Can I tell you a secret? I don't pay attention to these clocks. I really don't. I know there's people that don't have relationships with the Lord, and they're driven by that. And they're, they're hunkering down. They're living in fear. They're probably waking up periodically every 15 minutes at night. What am I going to do? Right? But as a follower of Christ, we sign off on the atomic clock. And my clock's based on the coming of the Lord. When he's coming back. Right? 
He's got it all under control, man. And so uh, the father knows. Even Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back. It's the father. The father says, okay, it's time to go. And there we go. So that's one of the cool things, I believe, as a follower of Christ. We have some insight into the future. And we have some wisdom to know how to live day by day. So we're not caught up in the atomic clocks of the world, but we're reading God's word. We're understanding the times that we're living in. And friends, quite honestly, there are many people groups today that still have not heard the gospel for the first time. So let me tell you something. There's a lot of work to be done. This is not a time to withdraw and go underground. This is a time to let your light and your witness be proactive in the world where God's placed you. And that's what got Daniel all fired up. He's a teenager, 15, 16 years old, and the other three dudes with him. Teenagers. You think, man, like Ken was talking about, Mason, you know, a teenager. Man, we... I am so appreciative of the young people here at Life Church, man. You know? And I endeavor, you know, walking through the halls or the auditorium to go up to them and look them in the eye and say hi to them because there is great worth and value on their lives. You know? We see that God used teenagers when our world was in a huge conflict. Daniel and his buddies were raised up. Man, God's, God's going to, he's using our, our young people and he will continue to use them for his honor and glory. So don't blow by a teenager, man. God used teenagers. So what's he saying? I'm putting great worth on them, man. And so we need to esteem them and, uh, and let them know that we sure appreciate their faithfulness. So, this is not my home, number one, Daniel. The intro <clears throat> flares in the air. Last week, for those of you that were here, um, we talked about how God over and over again shot flares in the air to the nation of Israel to come back and have a relationship with him, that they were, they were allowing their hearts to become calloused and modeling the... the the lifestyle of the countries around them instead of being the example that God wanted them to be. And we see in Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people in Judah and Jerusalem for the past 23 years, so it wasn't just six months, eight months, a year and a half, five years, it was 23 years. Boom, boom, boom. Wake up. Come back to me. Man, you talk about God's grace. Huh? Talk about God's goodness. Oh, man. Last Sunday night, we had a leaders meeting in the cafe. And each of the leaders talked about what God had done in their ministries over the past year. And I wept. I couldn't contain it. The goodness of God. His faithfulness. It's overwhelming. 
And friends, we can't take that for granted, you know? And God today is shooting flares all around the world, man, to get our attention, to say, hey, don't get caught up in the culture you're living in right now. Keep that relationship where it needs to be. Let, let me be the priority in your life because I have a plan and purpose for you. And so God did it back then and he's doing it today. And he said, because you, have, you haven't listened to me, I will gather together all the armies of the north under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, whom I have appointed as my deputy and will bring them all against this land and its people and against the surrounding nations. And Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So, so Jeremiah was telling the folks in Israel, you're going to be exiled out of, out of Israel for 70 years. And after 70 years, you're going to come back home again. And can I tell you a secret? It happened just that way. What does that mean? That means God knows what he's talking about. God doesn't lie. And if you want to know the future, read your Bible. Because God's given us a window, a picture, a big picture. Not dates that we can land on, but seasons of life that we can track in a good way. So, number two, God did it. Verses one and two, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. So let's take a look at the timeline. Um, uh, it'll help um, kind of give you a big picture. So we see that Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel were kind of colleagues of sorts, um, this, we have the death of King Josiah, Nebuchadnezzar attacks Israel here, and then you've got the 70-year captivity. Travis has been camping out on Cyrus here, Ezra, the book of Ezra, and, and that's where he landed. So we're here on the timeline, the history timeline. And um, so here's the books of Daniel. You kind of see there, there's two different uh, rulers that, uh, that Daniel's going to influence, really. So that's where we're at. And, and Daniel, here, here he is, um, living for the Lord in Jerusalem. His, his three buddies, man, they're all fired up because they see God's been working in their lives and they're fired up over their futures. You know, God's got a plan for us. And then one day, boom, here comes Nebuchadnezzar and they're exiled out to Babylonia. And you talk about changing your future. And you would think teenagers, <laughs> they're on their iPads, their phones, man, they're texting, and uh, that's their world, right? Let's see how many likes. That doesn't happen at Life Church, but they're the teenagers outside of Life Church. That's what they're into, man, you know. And they want to see how many likes they have, you know, on their Facebook page. That's what keeps them going. Well, Daniel and his buddies, they weren't into that. All they knew is God is in charge of my life, and I'm trusting him in the good, the bad. I'm trusting him. 
And when you read those first two verses in Daniel 1, you realize it was the Lord that allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come walking into Jerusalem. It was the Lord that let him go into the temple and take those sacred objects out of that temple, God's house. It was the Lord. And Daniel didn't have a panic attack. He didn't freak out. What about my life? Where's God? You know? God doesn't love me. If he loved me, this wouldn't be happening. We have all said that at one point. And you might be saying it right now. Your own life. Where is God? He doesn't love me. Bad stuff wouldn't be happening to me right now. And so Daniel and his three friends really didn't do anything wrong. They were living for the Lord. And here, their freedom's taken from them. Hey, last Sunday, we talked about Brock Purdy, you know, San Fran quarterback. Remember that? My man. And, and hey, he's a Christian, so God's going to let him win, right? He's going to the Super Bowl. Well, I was watching that game, and I have to tell you, I was somewhat disheartened in that first quarter when he got injured. You can see his throwing arm, boof, gets torn. And, uh, and so I, I quietly watched, okay, Brock, you say you're a follower of Jesus. Here's a beautiful platform for you. You know, you're, you're a follower of Christ. People know that. So God's going to let you win. It's because after the game, you get to go on television with a microphone and tell, I just want to thank the Lord. Huh? Right? Wouldn't you think that would be the case? But he, he's, so I kind of was waiting to see how is this dude going to respond to a crisis, man? To going into exile. Is he going to blame God? Is he going to point his finger at God? How is he going to respond? And um, this past Wednesday, he went to Instagram and he, uh, to the 49er fans, and he wrote, can't put a price tag on moments like these. God is so faithful. To my Niners family and friends, thank you for your love and support this year. You see, Brock had made the statement, it was a great reminder of where my identity is, where it lies, and it's in Jesus. And I continue to lean on him. God and Jesus are my identity. Whatever I face, I won't be shaken from it. I've got a great foundation in him. Can I just tell you, my heart jumps when I see that kind of response. Because it's the real deal. We're not living for the Lord to get all the good stuff from God, you know, like he's a Santa Claus. He gives me everything I want, and if he doesn't give it to me, then I'm just going to walk away. And that's where I believe part of the deconstruction of your faith has become so popular in our culture in the past couple of years. Because really, people don't have their roots down deep into God's love, that anchor for when we're exiled in life. When you get your shoulder blown out in the playoff game, you know, where's God in the midst of that? Right? Doesn't that get you fired up, man? Brock, 
standing firm in his walk with the Lord. To me, that's, that's encouraging. And so, same thing with Daniel, you know? I, I take my hat off to Daniel and the three dudes that they're not, where is God, you know? We're going to, hey, here's, here's something cool. We're going to get taken uh, 900 miles away, you know, the long route away from Jerusalem. My parents aren't going to be around. We can have pizza with sausage on it every night. Now, Jews can't eat sausage, by the way, just in case you were wondering. Yeah, you know. They won't see what we're doing, you know. We can stay up after midnight. You know, they're not going to tell us to come in, hey, go to bed. No. They stayed steady in their walk with the Lord. Um, all because they were rewarded for the sins of their nation. They were rewarded by getting exiled into Babylon. Is that fair? Huh? What do you think? We're doing everything right, but all hell breaks out. You know, comes crashing down on me. Friends, we are living in a world today, we don't know what's going to be standing tomorrow. Really. And that's why we've got to anchor in our relationship with the Lord. So Daniel saw God's hand even in the midst of bad stuff happening. It's, it looks bad, but God's going to make it into good in the big picture. And we can choose to live with God's will or outside his will. Our choice matters. Do you know that? Our choice matters. We, so I was talking to a couple dudes yesterday at, at No Regrets, and, I was, and we were just talking. We said, you know, you know, we've been coming for a while. It's cool. But I, I like coming just to be with the dudes, man. You know? The dudes around me encourage me, right? And hopefully I'm encouraging them. Do you get it? It's not about me. It's about the body of Christ, that we can encourage each other. And so, so Daniel and his buddies, that's exactly what was going on. Number three, surrounded by evil. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family, and the other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. And uh, when you look at Daniel's life, by the way, you'd say, the guy, he has a right to complain. You know, he's earned it. Uh, In his journal, he can pout to God, you know, and get away from it. And when we look at Daniel, what he's going through here, um, our excuses for living for the Lord are pretty lame, wouldn't you say? Hmm? Uh, Daniel had a bright future. Um, He was a member of the royal family. And then one day it's all gone. Um, And he realized that, man, Babylon is a beautiful city, but it's not my home. And... um, When you look at what the first century Christians, how they lived their lives, when you look at Iran, China, Nigeria today, many other countries around the world, if you're a follower of Christ, you pay for it with your life. You you can't have a Bible. You You can't pray. You can't go to church. Right? 
Do we have a right to complain? Yes or no? Come on. Yes or no? No, we don't. Daniel's taken to a foreign country and everything he has known spiritually has just been evaporated from him. It's all gone. And he's got a decision to make. Am I going to live for God or am I, am I not? And um, we're grateful that Daniel's story, um, no matter how bad it gets, Daniel's experience was really the worst of it all. Because in Revelation 18.2, before Jesus returns, it says, Babylon has fallen, that great city has fallen. She has become a home for demons. She is a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture and every foul and dreadful animal. And so when you look at Babylon, it's 50 miles south of modern-day Baghdad, and it's all it is is ruins. And um, historically, Babylon was to cease and exist throughout all of history. So why is it prophesied here in Revelation 18 that Babylon has fallen? Because Babylon, in the eyes of God, is the personification of evil. When you think of evil, you look at Babylon, historically. That was the worst that it could ever get. Even at the end of human history, it still represents the worst of the worst. Nothing will ever reach its depths of depravity, friends. Not Al-Qaeda, not Mexican drug lords, not even Nazi Germany. It can't get worse than that. Babylon was the worst of the worst. And so... When you look um, in the world, we think this is the worst. No, it was, it was worse in Babylon. And Daniel did not make excuses or come up with reasons why he couldn't live for the Lord, man. He stayed strong in his faith. So, number one, what makes Babylon so bad? First of all, brainwashed. Verse 4, select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. And um, Babylon had a job description. They, were, they wanted to to influence their known world of that day. Whatever their culture was, they wanted it to spread to all the other countries around. And um, so Daniel and his friends were taught in the language and literature of Babylon. It's not like going into a library, you know, and studying the literature of Babylon. That's not what Daniel was writing about here. Verse 4 in the message, it reads, indoctrinate them in the Babylonian language and the lore of magic and fortune-telling. That's what was going they were, they on. Were, they were being trained to be brainwashed from their upbringing in Israel to where they were in Babylon. They were to rethink. The old was gone, the news come in, and Babylon is the biggest city in the world with the, the world's power, if military, we are it. Well, that's what they were told. This new system of thinking that Daniel and his friends is much like our culture today, friends, when we think about it. 
Our culture wants you and I to become brainwashed. Things that we thought were right are now looked at as wrong. And Nebuchadnezzar came up with an ingenious plan. He, he was really the first to see that the DNA in the Jewish people were something special. And he figured, man, we can indoctrinate these Jews and eventually send them back to Israel. They will have the Babylonian influence on them and they will change the nation of Israel for good. But when you think about it, what would the modern world be like if there weren't an Einstein, a Sabin, a Pulitzer, and multitudes like them? You take a look at our man Einstein, right? And Sabin, he came up with an oral polio vaccine in the 1950s. You know, Debbie and I watched a a special recently on polio. I never realized how bad it was in our nation. Millions of children were, were died from polio, were crippled. Adults were crippled, man. And, and you look at how God has really used the, the Jewish people. You know the Jews represent less than 0.2%, 0.2% of the world population, and they account for 22% of the recipients of the Nobel Prize. Think about that. 36% of the U.S. recipients of the Nobel Prize are Jews, and they only make up 2% of the U.S. population. What does that tell you? That tells you, that reminds us, going back to Genesis 12, that God blesses his people, and all the families on the earth will be blessed because of you, God said to Abraham. So when God said he blesses his people right here, it's evident that God uses them. And so Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to corral the brightest young Jewish minds, brainwash them, immerse them in the Babylonian culture, and then re-educate them completely and have them influence other Jews back in Israel back in the day. So that was a clever plot. And, um, and uh, in order to prepare for the service to the king, Daniel and his three friends were forced to compete, complete a rigorous three-year <laughs> training program. And uh, it was designed to certify them as enchanters, magicians, and into the occult. Babylon was into the occult big time. So the stage was set. First, Nebuchadnezzar set out to change their language. Um, Second, he was out to change their literature. Everything they had been trained in the past, this training, this teaching, um, would make a difference. Now, their goal to re-educate these Jewish teenagers, uh, we see that happening in America. That's being done right now. Principles that are foreign to uh, the founding fathers and to our Christian faith. Uh, take a look at the founding fathers here. Uh, I know that's a bad picture, but that's been up there for a long time. It's aged. <laughs> but in uh, American history, that's accurate. 
Think of the role the Christian church and its pastors played in America in their early days. So we can see what Nebuchadnezzar was doing to the Jews in Babylon. We see that same model being used in America. A preacher named Francis Bellamy wrote our Pledge of Allegiance. Another pastor, Samuel Smith, wrote the hymn, My Country Tis of Thee. John Leland, another pastor, wrote the introduction of the First Amendment to the Constitution. Prior to 1861, 90% of all America's college presidents were pastors. It wasn't just people who honored God back then. Our institutions did too. In fact, 106 of the first 108 schools in America were founded on Christian faith. America's first school book was the New England Primer. It had the Lord's Prayer on the cover. It taught the alphabet in theological verse. For example, A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. B, it's heaven to find the Bible's mind. C, Christ crucified for sinners died. That's what was being taught in the classroom. A study of 15,000 items, newspaper articles, pamphlets, books, diaries, all written by our founding fathers. A careful study of these documents found that 94% of all the quotes from these sources came directly from the Bible. A ruling by the Supreme Court in 1892, our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. It is impossible that it should be otherwise. In this sense, and to the extent our civilizations and our institutions are emphatically Christian. As far back as 1933, the Humanist Manifesto was written, and it set out its plain objectives, but few people paid attention back there, and those who read it scoffed at it, thinking it would never happen. Listen to the goals of the Humanist Manifesto. Bring young people to deny the deity of God and the biblical account of creation. It set out to re-educate young people to the fact that moral value should be self-determined and situational. In other words, there's no absolute truth. And that's big in our culture today. This manifesto also stated the intent to remove distinctions between the roles of male and female in our society. It also advocated the right of abortion and euthanasia. I don't know if you realize, but euthanasia is being uh, revved up on the northwest states of our country. It's creeping across our country. And argued vigorously for the redistribution of wealth in America. Debbie and I were talking, and one of our boys, I won't say which one, was in kindergarten. And he came home after school that day saying, we were singing in class, we've got the whole world in our hands, but he said, I couldn't sing it. He said, I knew enough not to sing it, so I hummed over it in my mind. As a kindergarten, we've got the whole world in our hands. What's that saying? Yeah, I know we're supposed to make kids feel cool. But the song really says he's got the whole world in his hands, referring to God Almighty. 
So our kindergarten son was able to recognize that. Kind of, that's pretty cool, you know? So in many ways, Babylon has become part of America, wouldn't you say? We've learned our lessons at the feet of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And it's little wonder that we have lived to see that Bible reading has been eliminated from our classrooms, creation science excluded from our classrooms. This is nothing new. It started all the way back in Babylon, friends. It's worked its way through. And yet Daniel and his friends went through these classes and they resisted the pressure to change. What does that tell you? In our culture today, where Christians are, in a very subtle way, um, being told that your Christian faith is outdated, it's not relevant for today. Um, all through print, media, movies, etc. And uh, we see that Daniel and his friends were able to remain strong in their faith. Um, And we're going to find out the reason why the next time we look at Daniel. You've got to go back. There is a reason. And I'll say this, that Daniel, as Roald Amundsen taught us that we need to prepare, Daniel's parents were wise enough to train their son Daniel ahead of time to be willing to stand alone when you're exiled. And parents, I want to challenge you this morning. You've got that same responsibility. For we're living in Babylon, and it's your responsibility to train your sons and daughters to stand alone. Prepare them, prepare them for the future. Start eating dolphin. <laughs> Start hanging out with the Eskimos, right? Yeah. Ride your bicycle 2,000 miles. Friends, spiritually speaking, don't wait until you're in the middle of a crisis to figure out what you're going to do. It goes for all of us. Prepare ahead of time your core values you're willing to die for. That's important. Father, we thank you this morning. Once again, we're reminded on how relevant the Bible is. Well, the story of Daniel gives us the fortitude, the encouragement to prepare for exile, prepare for crises, to thrive and not just survive. Lord, we need your help. And we're grateful once again that you didn't put us on this planet and say, good luck, I hope you make it. No, no, when we put our faith in you, you move in, and you're the one that's living in and through us.
And so today, we pause to look into our lives to see, hey, has the world changed me? Has the world's value superseded God's values? That happens so easy, so subtle. So Lord, forgive us if we've compromised. Forgive us if we've neglected our walk with you. And we're grateful. I think today, Lord, you even shot a flare in the air in this auditorium. Just to be aware of the days that we're living in. How important it is to live for you. And so thank you. Thank you for making that clear to us. Maybe you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is a great opportunity to realize that God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to go to the cross and pay your sin debt in full. He took your place. He took my place. And you can say, Jesus, thank you for going to the cross. I'm a sinner. Sin will keep me away from a holy God. So forgive me. I'm inviting you into my life to become my spiritual leader, my master. And I will follow you all the days of my life. And I will allow your spirit to live through me so that I'll model you to those around me. So thank you, Jesus, for paying my sin debt in full. And now I become your son. I become your daughter. For which I'm so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.